But this morning we're in the third week of a series called Teach Us to Pray. What we've been doing in this series is we've been looking at this model prayer that Jesus gave His followers as a way to teach them how to pray. It's a prayer that we have come to call the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up with a Catholic background, you may have known it as the Our Father. But what we're doing is we're just kind of walking through this model prayer that Jesus gave us to learn from Jesus about how we can grow in our lives of prayer. And I want to remind you real quick, on the final week of this series, what we'll be doing is just trying to answer any questions that you guys have regarding prayer. So any questions you have either about the Lord's Prayer in general or just um, prayer in general, any questions about prayer that you have, anything you wonder about prayer, submit those questions. And again, we're going to try to tackle as many as we can the last week of the series. On your bulletin, there should be a little QR code. You can scan that on your phone and submit questions that way. But I want you to kind of take a mental exercise real quick, and I want you to imagine that it's about 740 B.C., and you are living in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. And for the last several decades of your life, things have been good, everything's been great in your city, but things are starting to get a little tense, you're a little anxious, because there are rumors going around the city that the king has become sick. And this isn't just like any typical king, this is King Uzziah, this guy has been king for 52 years. So he's the guy who's been the king most of your life. He's the only king you have ever known, and he has been a good king. Whereas most of the kings before him were were terrible, evil kings, Uzziah was mostly a good king, and he has led Jerusalem to more prosperity than it's experienced ever since the legendary King Solomon, who was king hundreds of years before this. So things are good, life has been good, but you hear that Uzziah is sick. And not only that, At the same time, there's rumors that start kind of swirling around the city that there's this new military superpower called Assyria that is rising up. And so you start seeing in the news that every single nation, every single state, every single city that Assyria has marched against, they have completely annihilated. No one has been able to stand in the way of Assyria. And so as you hear these rumors that your king has sick, you also hear rumors that Assyria may be turning their sights to Jerusalem, your home. And they could be coming toward you any day. So your little anxious things are a little tense, but then one day the gossip and the rumors turn into confirmed news and you hear that King Uzziah has died. He is dead. And so this is a time where the enemy is on the horizon, this enemy who is more powerful than any enemy who have come before them. They are on the horizon. They are threatening your city. And at that time, the king is dead. So it's in the middle of that, it's in the middle of that situation that God is going to call this man named Isaiah to basically go and speak on behalf of God. God is going to commission Isaiah to go and proclaim a message to Jerusalem. And the message that God is going to give Isaiah to proclaim to Jerusalem is, hey, yes, because of your sin, because of the evil within Jerusalem, judgment is coming at the hands of Assyria. So he's going to send Isaiah to proclaim judgment, but at the same time, he's going to send Isaiah to proclaim hope. And the ultimate message is going to be, even though judgment is coming, God is going to be merciful. God is going to forgive, and God is going to restore you from the judgment that is coming. So God is going to commission this man, Isaiah, and he's going to send him out with that message in this dark, intense, and scary, and anxiety-riddled time. However, before God does that, Before God commissions Isaiah and sends him out with this message of judgment and of hope, 
God is going to show Isaiah a vision of himself. So we see this in Isaiah chapter 6. This is what Isaiah the prophet writes. He says, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. So Isaiah, he's kind of setting the stage here. He wants us to know that what he's about to write about happens within the context of this time of mourning and great fear and anxiety over the loss of the only king that he's ever known and the oncoming threat of Assyria, the most powerful military the world has ever seen. Isaiah saying, it was in the middle of that season, in the middle of all of that uncertainty, in the middle of all of that fear and mourning and anxiety, he says, in the middle of that, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So notice what happens here. Isaiah, in his life, remember, he is dealing with a lot. He has just lost the king, the only king he's ever known, a king that he knew personally, the greatest king in generations. And this new enemy is threatening to march against his city. Isaiah's situation, his circumstance is dark. And what's going to happen throughout the rest of the book is that God is going to come and God is going to speak into Isaiah's circumstances. God is going to speak to Isaiah's situation. But don't miss what happens before God does that. Before God says anything about what Isaiah is going through, God shows Isaiah God. God says, before we talk about what's going on in your life, before we talk about your fear and your worry and your anxiety, God says, Isaiah, what you really need first and foremost is to see me and to see and experience who I am. So here's what Isaiah sees when he sees God. He says, I saw the Lord and he was sitting on a lofty throne. Right, so King Uzziah is dead but God is still on his throne. It says, And the train of his robe filled the temple. In attending him were mighty seraphim. Those are these angelic creatures. He said, Each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So what Isaiah sees when he sees God sitting on his throne is he sees these mysterious, these angelic creatures, and all of these creatures can manage to do is to cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. These angels in heaven who witness God, who see God, all they can do is cry out, holy, holy, holy. Now, what in the world are they saying? What does that mean? Because in, in our world, holy can kind of be like a little bit of a negative word, right? The only time you would really use that in conversation would be to say, oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so, they're just, they're holier than thou. Like, it's an insult, right? To be holier than thou means that that person thinks they're better than everybody. So, so we kind of miss what this ancient Hebrew word holy actually means. But at its most basic level, the most basic understanding, most basic translation of the word holy simply means other or set apart. For something to be holy means that it is completely different. It is completely set apart from everything else around it. It's transcendent. It, it implies glory and majesty. All of that is wrapped up in this Hebrew word holy. 
Something's completely set apart. It's completely transcendent. It's completely distinct and different from anything else. It's high above and exalted everything else around it. And then here, here's the interesting thing. So in our culture today, if I really wanted to emphasize something, um, I would just use a couple extra different words, right? So if, if this week, like you go to your favorite barbecue spot, and you're going and you're getting some sliced brisket, and the day you go, like they are on top of their game, right? Because let's be honest, like barbecue is kind of an art. So some days it's, it's not as good as other days, right? You can kind of be hit or miss. So you go, and the day you go, they are on the top of their game. Like the brisket is perfectly seasoned, perfectly smoked. All the fat has rendered perfectly, and it's just juicy and tender and melts in your mouth, and it's the best brisket you've ever had. What you're going to do is you're not just going to say, man, that was good. You're going to say, man, that was so good. You're going to say, so good. Right now, that word, so, is that an adverb or what? Uh, Kristen, your teacher? Yeah, is that an adverb? Somebody, oh, no. Okay, anybody else? I don't know. Everyone I've asked, like, I don't know. I failed eighth grade, so I certainly don't know. But um, it's like an adverb or an adjective or a modifier, something, whatever that thing is, you're going to add that extra word to give even more description or more emphasis to how good the barbecue was. You're going to say, man, that barbecue was so good, or that barbecue was very good. That's how we're going to do it. Now, in Hebrew, that's not how they would emphasize something. In Hebrew, the way they would say how good that barbecue was is they would simply say, man, the barbecue I had today was good, good. That's how they would do it in Hebrew. You would just repeat the same word twice. That's the way that you would emphasize something. So if God was just holy, if he was just kind of baseline holy, baseline set apart, distinct, transcendent, high above everything else, you'd say, hey, God is holy. But if God was like, extraordinarily holy, in Hebrew, what you would say is you would say, God is holy, holy. That's how you would say it. But here, these angels who are around the throne of God, they do something. They like basically make something up. Nobody even talked like this in Hebrew culture. What they say is not God is holy, not even God is holy, holy. All they can muster up is God is holy, holy, holy. For them, saying something three times is basically like saying God is holy to infinity. Like there's no way to actually describe or understand his holiness. That's what they are saying. So these angelic creatures, notice, they are simply existing in the presence of God. And by simply existing in God's presence and by simply beholding and getting a glimpse of God's glory and beauty, all they can do is cry out in worship, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. That's what Isaiah sees. Isaiah is beholden with the holiness, the glory, the majesty, the transcendence of God. Now remember, when Isaiah sees that, he's got a lot going on. He's got a lot to worry about. There's a lot to be fearful and anxious about. And God's going to speak to Isaiah. He's going to speak to Isaiah about all those things that Isaiah and Jerusalem are dealing with. God is going to confront those things and talk about them. But before God ever does that, God shows Isaiah his glory. He shows him 
his holiness. It's as if God is saying, Isaiah, what you really need right now in this moment of fear and anxiety, what you really need even more than different circumstances, even more than me intervening in your situation, he's saying, Isaiah, what you really need is me. What you really need is to behold me in all of my glory and in all of my holiness. Now, what does this have to do with the Lord's Prayer? So we talked last week about how Jesus starts off the Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. So we talked about how when we pray, we are praying to not some distant God, but we are praying to an intimate Father, a perfect Father who loves us, who cares for us, who is concerned with our needs and what's going on in our lives. That's the God we pray to. And not only is he our Father, but we saw this week that he's our Father who's in heaven, meaning he is ruling and reigning. He is powerful to meet our needs and our requests. So Jesus teaches through the Lord's Prayer, understand that is who we are praying to. This morning in the Lord's Prayer, we're going to get to what is the first petition or the first request, the first thing we actually ask of God in prayer. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, this is what Jesus says. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, and here's the first thing we ask, may your name be kept holy. Or if you learned the Lord's Prayer growing up in another transition, maybe translation, maybe you memorized it, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus says, when you pray, you're praying to our Father in heaven, and the first thing you should ask of that Father is that his name be hallowed or his name be kept holy holy. So what it means, let's unpack this real quick, what it means for God's name to be kept holy in my life, or what it means for God's name to be hallowed in my life, is it means that God's name would be the ultimate treasure in my life and in the world. That God would be the one who is exalted above all things, that nothing in the world would take his place as the one who is holy above all things. Right, to, to say, God, may your name be kept holier, hallowed be thy name. It's basically a way to say, God, don't let anything in the world or anything in my life take away the glory that is rightfully due to you. Now, here's the weird thing, and this line in the Lord's Prayer has always been weird to me. It's, it's strange that, that this line, it's not a statement, it's a request. Or because here in English and in the original Hebrew, it's clear. Jesus does not say, when you pray, pray, our Father in heaven, your name is holy or your name is hallowed. That's not the language here. Jesus says, no, when you pray, pray, Father, may your name be kept holy. May your name be hallowed. Right? That's what Jesus is saying here. It's God, let this happen. God, allow this to happen. It's actually a request. Because Again, what we have seen in Isaiah is that God already is holy, right? God is on his throne in heaven right now at this very moment. He is holy. He is being hallowed. The angels are worshiping him and his glory. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. He is holy. So again, this line seems weird. Why in the world do I need to ask God for him to be something that he already is? That sounds strange, right? If God already is holy, if he is hallowed, which he is, why do I need to say, God, may your name be kept holy? Or may your name be hallowed? That's weird. That's strange. That's a weird request. 
Because again, but these angels in heaven, they see God and simply by seeing, simply by beholding God, all they can do is cry out, holy, holy, holy. And here's the awesome thing. You get to Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Revelation is written about 800 years after Isaiah. And in Revelation, a different guy, a guy named John, he is given a vision of God in heaven. And 800 years later, you know what John sees when he sees the throne of God in heaven? He sees those exact same creatures doing the exact same thing. Right? 800 years later, those same creatures still haven't lost the wonder of just declaring God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. For 800 years, God's glory and his beauty and his majesty hasn't lost its wonder to these creatures. That's just who God is. So God already is holy. So again, why do I need to in prayer, why do I need to say, God, may your name be kept holy? Why am I asking God to do something that's already been done? And, and here's why. It's because while his name is holy, while he is hallowed, while he is high and lifted up, that's a reality. The truth is in my life, because of my sin, I don't live in a way, I don't honor him in a way as if he is holy and hallowed and high and lifted up. All right, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter one. And this will be on the screen, so follow along because there's, there's a lot in a few short verses here. So lean in and look and listen to this. This is what Paul writes. He says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Now, what Paul is saying there, and this is very, very, you know, um, politically incorrect in our day. So like, you know, forgive me if you get angry. But what Paul is writing 2,000 years ago is that no one is truly an atheist. Right? Well, what he's saying is that what we really mean when we say we don't believe in God is we're just suppressing this truth that we really believe is true because we don't want to acknowledge the implications of the reality of God. Right? Now, don't get mad at me. That's what Paul said. It's not my idea. It's his inspired by the Holy Spirit, so you can take it up with God. But that's what God says. We all, deep down, if we are intellectually honest with ourselves, we know God's out there. We're just afraid of the ramifications of what that means. And so here's what we do. Here's what you do, and here's what I do. Verse 21. Paul says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Instead of, and here's what we do. Here's what we do. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. What Paul says we do as human beings is we look at the perfect, holy, glorious creator of the universe, and instead of worshiping him, we dishonor him. We dishonor his name, and we worship created things instead of worshiping the creator. That's what we do. That's what Paul says happens in all of our lives. We end up in idolatry, meaning we are worshiping created things. We are trying to find our satisfaction. We are trying to find fulfillment in created things instead of worshiping God, the creator, alone. 
And so we bring dishonor to God's holy name. And so what Jesus says is we must, in our lives, we must, again, hallow the name of God. We must elevate the name of God back to its rightful place in our lives. Now, I know that's strange, but kind of think of it like this, and this is going to be a ridiculous example. But back in, it was like fourth or fifth grade, I saw... uh, Star Wars Episode Four, you know, um, the original Star Wars, back in around fourth or fifth grade, I saw it for the first time. And to say that Star Wars changed my life would probably be a little bit melodramatic, but Star Wars absolutely changed my childhood. From the first time I saw this movie, it was holy. It was so different. It was so transcendent. It was so set apart from anything else I had watched up until that point in my life. So I started, you know, playing the card game. I started collecting the toys. Everything was about Star Wars. And then I watched The Empire Strikes Back. And again, The Empire Strikes Back, it was holy. It was set apart. It was so transcendent. And then I watched Return of the Jedi, holy, set apart, transcendent. You get to the end, you're like, oh my gosh, that was his dad all along. This is insane. Right, Star Wars was literally holy for me. It was different than any other form of entertainment I had consumed. There was nothing like it. It occupied this space in my life as a kid that nothing else could touch. And then when I was 13 or 14, I started hearing word that they're making some new Star Wars movies. They're going to make these prequels. So me and my friends, man, we were pumped. We were excited. We were counting down the months and the weeks and the days. And finally, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, came out. And then we were there on opening day. We got our popcorn. We had our soda. We were ready to go. And we were watching it. And it's like, this is garbage. Like, what is this? This is not Star Wars. It was absolutely awful. And then the next two after that, same thing. They were terrible. See, see, the original trilogy, the first three Star Wars, they were holy, they were transcendent, they were set apart. But then the prequels came along. And what did the prequels do? The prequels brought dishonor to the franchise that was Star Wars. It dishonored, it dishonored the holy name of Star Wars. It was a cheap money grab. And then a few years ago, you know, Disney buys Star Wars. And I'm like, all right, we're going to do episode seven, The Force Awakens. It comes out. I go see it just because it's Star Wars. And it's like, all right, this is, this is better than the prequels. But still, like, this, this is not Star Wars. This is not holy. The same thing. And then back in, I think, 2016, they released Rogue One. Which, again, I'm getting nerdy for a second. Rogue One is basically a prequel to episode four, the original Star Wars. And again, because of the track record, I I wasn't expecting anything. I wasn't excited about it, but it's Star Wars. I'm still going to go see it. So I went in with no expectations. Man, I kid you not, I sat in that movie theater, and I had chills on my arms. And there were moments, laugh at me all you want, I don't care. There were moments I had tears in my eyes because it was a magical experience. It literally made me feel like that fourth grade kid again. The awe, the wonder, the transcendence was back. 
Whereas those, those prequels and all those that brought dishonor to Star Wars, Rogue One did something where it brought that transcendence back, it brought honor back, it elevated it back to this place that it should have been all along. Now again, I know that's a really stupid example, but one, you're going to remember it. And two, here's what's happening here through this request. God is holy. Just like the original trilogy, they were always holy. Nothing bad ever happened to them. They were always great. God is holy. He's still holy whether you want him to be or not, whether you acknowledge him as or not. God is holy. He is exalted above all. But in our lives, in our sin, we bring dishonor to his name. We don't treasure him as we should. We don't elevate him to the place of honor that we should. We don't treat him with the reverent fear that his holiness demands. And so when Jesus says, hey, when you're praying, pray to our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, or may your name be kept holy, what Jesus is saying is that we need to elevate God back in our lives to the place that he belongs. We need to make sure that God is in the place in our lives where he is exalted. He is treasured above everything else in our lives. Now, here's what Jesus knows about me. Well, he knows everything about me. Here's one thing Jesus knows about me. Jesus knows that in my personal prayer life, my tendency is simply to go to God and pray about the needs and the desires that are on my mind. Jesus knows that my tendency is just simply to pray about the things I need God to do for me. And Jesus is going to teach us we should pray about those things. He's going to teach us God wants to hear about your needs. God wants to hear about your desires. In two weeks when Jesus says, give us today our daily bread, he's saying, hey, come to your Father with your needs. Bring those desires and needs to him. God wants those. But Jesus knows my tendency is to only pray about my needs. To only pray about my desires. And Jesus knows that when my prayers revolve only around my needs and only around my desires and the things I need in this world, what's going to happen is I'm going to start to believe that those things I need and desire is what is ultimate and holy in my life. That when my prayer life is simply asking God for things, what happens is those things I'm asking for, even if they're good things, become elevated to a holy and hallowed place that only God should be. I begin to think it's those things that I need and not God himself. And so when, when I pray, God, hallowed be thy name or your name be kept holy, it's a way to remind myself as I enter into prayer, okay, God, yeah, I'm going to ask you for some things. God, I've got some desires. I've got some needs in my life that I'm going to ask you for. But to, before we get there, say, God, may you be hallowed. May you be holy. It's a way to remind myself that, okay, God, those things I'm going to ask for, they're not ultimate. And whether or not you give me those things, I still get you, and ultimately you are what I need. I think back to Isaiah. Isaiah was in a dark and scary and anxious season. And God desired to speak into that season. God was going to do that. But before God ever gives them hope about the situation, God shows Isaiah God. Because God knows that ultimately what Isaiah needs is not a different circumstance, not a new situation. Ultimately what Isaiah needed was God and his glory and his holiness in his life. So Jesus says, when you pray, 
praying to our Father who's in heaven. But Jesus says, when you go to that Father in prayer, don't start with you. Don't start with your needs. Yes, get there. Yes, God wants to hear that, but don't start there. Start by exalting God. Start by placing God in his rightful place in your life above everything else. And here's the deal. The reason that God calls us to pray like this, to, to first elevate him, to exalt him to this place of highest honor in our lives, before we even go to him and ask him to meet our needs. The reason God asks us to do this, it's not because God is a glory hog. All right, God is not sitting up in heaven, super insecure, like, man, I don't know how these human beings feel about me. I really wish they would give me some glory and honor here and exalt me. I, I, I really could use some, you, you know, I'm kind of a words person. I could use some praise from these humans. That's not it. God is being worshiped by these angelic creatures who are just crazy, mysterious, and awesome. He doesn't need our praise and our worship. He's not insecure. That's not why God calls us to do this. God calls us to do this because he knows that he is the only one who can bear the weight of our exaltation. God is the only thing who can bear the weight of being exalted, of being hallowed in your life and in my life. Here's what I mean. When our prayer lives are all about what we need. So let's say, you know, at your job, um, somebody retires, so they're going to promote somebody into that position. And man, you've been gunning for this promotion for years and years and years. Like this is, like this is everything you've been working for. If your prayer life is only about that promotion, right, if it's only about God giving you, if, if your mindset is, God, I need this promotion. God, I have to have this promotion. God, everything has been pointing to this promotion. I've been working so hard. God, if you give me this promotion, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. I'll be content. Everything will be good and my life will be fulfilled. If you're exalting that promotion to that place in your life, even if you get it, it's ultimately going to let you down. It's going to disappoint you. It's not going to satisfy you and fulfill you like you thought it would because it was never meant to. God is the only one who can bear that weight. God is the only one who can fulfill us. God is the only one who can satisfy us. God is the only one who can bring joy in our lives. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, yes, in prayer, you're coming to a father who loves you, who cares about you, who wants to be your needs. So bring your needs, bring your requests to God. But put those requests in their rightful place. And as you come and you ask God for all of these things, before you get there, you say, God, you are holy. You are glorious. You alone, our God, are the thing that is ultimate in my life. And so God, I'm about to ask you for some things. I've got some things I'm worried about. I've got some fears. I've got some anxieties. I wanna ask you to meet some needs, God. But before I do that, God, you are ultimate. And whatever the answer is for all of that, I've got you. And that will be enough. See, to pray, hallowed be thy name, it's a reminder to us that God is the ultimate prize of prayer, not the things he can give us. God is the prize. He is the purpose of prayer. And so what we ultimately need, what we ultimately need in this life are not earthly things. It's not God to answer the request we bring to him in prayer. What we ultimately need is the presence of the holy, glorious God of all creation. And that's exactly what we have through prayer. So Ben's going to come back up and we're going to continue worshiping this God through song. And then 
at the end of the service, we'll worship through giving back financially to God, those of you who are part of the family. But hey, if you're here, as we sing for the next few minutes, if you want to come forward and pray about anything, feel free to do that. Um, we'll have some people up here at the front. If there's anything you would like for somebody to pray for you about, there'll be some people up here at the front. They would be honored to pray for you about whatever's on your heart, whatever's on your mind. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand, and we'll continue worshiping this perfect, holy, glorious God this morning. We will be joining with those angels in heaven as they worship. Let's pray.